The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Are corrupt uh, to the to the highest degree, uh, filled with wickedness, right? And uh, you know, it raises the question, and it's a question that modern people are asking often. You know, if there is a good and loving God, why is there evil in the world? Uh, why do bad things happen to good people, or for that matter, why do bad things happen to bad people? Why, you know, why is there evil everywhere in the world if God is good and loving? And, of course, that question assumes some things about God that I don't know the people asking would, would agree with, but it assumes that God, first of all, is a good God, that God is not vindictive or evil or twisted, that he desires good things. Uh, so that's a first assumption in that statement. The second assumption is that he's able to actually do something about it, that he's all-powerful. And, of course, we believe in the, the God of the Scripture who created all things and who is indeed good, and is Lord of all creation, powerful over all things, and therefore able, able to do something about it. And so it creates all kinds of problems. And unbelievers, and uh, sadly, uh, or not sadly, but the reality is that many of us as believers wrestle with these questions. And we hear of horrible things that happen in the world, uh, disasters and traumas and, and sin running rampant, and you, you ask this question. Uh, either God doesn't exist, maybe, or he's abandoned us. You know, he was just kind of his little science project, and he got it going, and he's left. You know, that's the answer of deism. Uh, the answer of others is, say, well, God is not powerful. You know, he would do something, but his hands were tied, that kind of thing. Well, uh, this passage certainly looks at something that doesn't answer it completely, but it looks at it. So as we go through this, we're going to try to do two things this morning. We're going to try to answer in some ways, not completely, and probably not to your satisfaction, so you know, don't ask for your money back. But we want to answer the question and wrestle with it a bit. We'll say that. We want to wrestle with the question, uh, what is God's relationship to evil in the world? And as we see it carried out in judgment on Sodom, what does it tell us about how God deals with evil and wickedness in, in, in the world today? Secondly, we want to look at really uh, the role of Abraham and the place of Lot as they are bystanders are, are uh, really central characters in the midst of this evil place. So there's all this evil going on, and you've got these two characters, Abraham and Lot, who are very much uh, held up in comparison. Chapter 18 is really all about Abraham, truly righteous Abraham living by faith, and chapter 19 is truly about Lot, who is not the most stellar character. Okay? Uh, he's not really anything that any of us probably would be patterning our lives after intentionally. Okay, you may be accidentally patterning your life after Lot, but that's not necessarily what you want. Okay, So to start off, let me just say a couple things about evil in general. Uh, really not related so much to this passage, but it'll give us some background. First thing, it's important, important distinction to, to start off with. Okay, what, what really is evil? When we use the word wicked or evil, what do we mean by it? What does the world mean by it? Well, what the world means by it generally is this. Evil is anything that comes into my life I don't like, all right? So, like if, you know, the Super Bowl is showing and I go to my computer and I turn my computer on because I want to watch streaming video of the Super Bowl and I find out that it's blocked because I'm living in Thailand, that is evil, 
okay? Right? Or you're going to watch World Cup soccer and you get up at 2 o'clock in the morning to watch a World Cup soccer game and the power goes out. That's evil. Okay, the world says that evil is anything that comes into my life I don't like. All right? Well, that's a very flawed definition of evil. In fact, I would say biblically, uh, we must make the distinction that suffering in itself is not evil. Okay, just because you suffer doesn't mean it's an evil thing. All right? Suffering is not evil. In fact, uh, and here, here's the problem. You know, when we looked at this in, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, God created a world where suffering was inherent and the potential for, for, potential for suffering was true and real before the fall. Right? God did not say to Adam and Eve, you'll never suffer. If you, if you trip and fall and bang your head on a rock, you're not going to hurt. Okay? The potential, we live in a world governed by the laws of physics and gravity. Okay? And all those rules were in operation before the fall. And so before the fall, as in sin entering the world, a fall, meaning you fall down and hit your head, you would suffer. Okay, if Adam climbed up in a tree to pick fruit because uh, it grew up real high and he slipped and fell out of the tree, okay, his body would break. Okay? There's nothing that says pre-fall he was Superman, right? And only kryptonite could hurt him. Okay? The reality is that God created a world where suffering was a real potential before and after sin. Okay? So suffering is not necessarily a, a factor or a result of sin. Now, sin has suffering with it. Okay? So all sin ends in suffering at some level, but not all suffering is caused by or attributed to sin. It's real important we get that distinction. And in fact, when we look at it, things through the New Testament, through Jesus and the apostles, they're very clear that suffering is not evil. Okay, they tell us things like this, Hebrews 12. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross and its shame. Okay, Jesus joyfully suffered. Um, now he's seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. Okay? Uh, have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my children, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes each one he accepts as his child. Right? Now that involves, you know, I don't know about how it works for you in your household, but when I was a kid, discipline and punishment always, in my mind, equated with some form of evil to my body, right? Some sort of suffering, something I didn't like. Okay, but God says that's not evil. It's not evil, it's the goodness of God. It is the love of God at work in our life, right? Paul says it this way in Corinthians. He says, that's why I take pleasure in my weakness. I take pleasure, I take joy and delight in my weakness and in the insults, hardships, persecution, and troubles that I suffer for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, Paul says, look, I, I love the suffering. So this is just, this is the best, right? This is not evil. It's how God shows his strength in my weakness. So I enjoy this stuff, right? That's where we're all at, right? We're all just loving and enjoying all this suffering and good stuff, right? We just can't wait, right? Because we know that suffering is a good thing in our life. Colossians 1.24, I'm glad when I suffer for you and my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Amazing words. Okay, we don't have time to go into it. I don't want to uh, get too sidetracked here. But just know that 
uh, the, the point is, suffering is not evil. Just because hard things come into life, because things, there's hardship, there's difficulty, even, even what we would consider harmful things, okay, those are not necessarily evil. All right? It's very important. And when you talk to people in the world or other believers who are struggling with this, who are in the midst of trials and tribulations, people will say, I don't understand why God doesn't love me. Why is God doing this to me? If God is good and loving, why is He making things so difficult for me? Well, you've got to know that's a misunderstanding of God, His character, and the purpose of hardship in our life. If we bought into the world's definition that anything we don't like is somehow evil. It's not true. It's not true. Second thing, kind of a corollary of this, is that judgment is not evil. Okay? Judgment is not evil. All right? Uh, and, and it's crazy. Right now, I don't know if you know, but there's modern theology in evangelical conservative churches among supposedly Bible-believing Christians, there's this wave of theology that says God could not send people to hell. A good and loving God could not do that. If God is truly good and loving, He would never condemn people to hell. Well, you know, that, there's just like about a hundred reasons why that's flawed thinking, all right? Uh, but one of them is this idea that, and where, where it grows out of is this idea that judgment is evil, right? And it's a bit ironic. We'll see the irony of it in a minute. But uh, let me give you a, a, a quick definition of, of my definition of evil and, and judgment. Uh, evil is ultimately defined by its intention, okay? What makes something inherently evil is what motivates it, okay? What's behind it. So the reality is uh, a person can do a very good thing with very evil intentions. Okay? A person can give a gift. A, a, a child predator can give candy to a child. Okay? Looks on the outside as a very benevolent, kind thing. But in reality, it is a way to manipulate a child so that later he can harm that child. Okay? So it's evil, even though it looks good on the outside. So evil originates uh, from the human heart, always. Okay? All the origin and source of every evil in the world is from the human heart. All right? So when we think about what evil is, evil is what comes out of the human heart. Now, you can make a case, well, what about Satan? You know, Satan is an evil force in the world, and certainly Satan may be motivating and moving people to do evil things, but we can't blame it in the end on Satan. Uh, in the end, what evil happens, it happens because it originates from the sinfulness of our human hearts. Okay? So it originates from there, and it's any action coming from a rebellious heart seeking to satisfy the desires of the flesh and the self with no regard of God's way. So when Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, it was evil because they were seeking to be like God, to gain wisdom, uh, to satisfy the desires of the, the eyes and the flesh, uh, the taste, not by following God, but by taking matters into their own hands and by their own means, their own way, in rebellion, in, in, in opposition to God's plan, did their own thing. And that's evil. And in the bottom line, that's what evil is. It is our own human choices uh, to live apart from God's way, to live in rebellion to what God has commanded us clearly to do. Right? It's uh, meeting human needs, my own, doing my own thing, my own way, uh, apart from God's intention, purpose, and will. Judgment, on the other hand, originates in the loving character of God. Always, and it's important to get this, uh, judgment originates in the loving and holy character of God. Okay, God is single in his attributes. So when we say that God is full of wrath and judgment, it's not distinguished or separate from his love. 
It's not like God gets up one morning and says, well, today I'm kind of in a grouchy mood. Today's a good day to execute judgment because I just don't feel like loving people today. I think I'll go whack some sinners, right? Uh, it doesn't work that way with God. God is always what He is. So every day He is fully loving, fully compassionate, fully merciful, and fully just and right uh, and judging. Okay, So you can't separate those things out. And so judgment originates in the holy character of God. It may at time involve human agents. So we see the Babylonians sweeping down on Israel later on, carrying out God's judgment. And they came killing and destroying and slaughtering uh, as instruments of God's judgment. All right? Now, they were sinful human beings carrying it out, and later God judges the Babylonians. But they were, at that point, instruments of God. Um, sometimes God does it without human help. So, like in the case here with Sodom and Gomorrah, he just rains down fire and brimstone. He doesn't need human help. He just has a, a rainstorm of hot burning sulfur that scorches and burns everything. Okay, in, in the end, same net effect. A lot of people die. Uh, everything is destroyed. It's judgment. Okay, it is God inflicting His wrath on sin. Uh, and it's important to note that. It is from God, it comes from His character, and it is therefore the right and just action against sin and wickedness. So judgment is not evil. Judgment is, in fact, good. It is the right response to sin. Now, the ironic thing in all this, really, is that on the one hand, the world will, will blame and accuse God for letting evil in the world, right? Why do you let why, why there bad things, why do bad things happen, why are there criminals and you know, out-of-control governments and all this stuff? Interestingly, though, anytime God apparently does something to bring judgment, what do people scream out? Well, God's being unfair and unjust, right? It's funny how the world's really confused on this issue. But the reality is the world is crying out for judgment. And there's a lot of ways that we can see that. Uh, one, one way is to see what people watch on television. Now, I'm kind of clueless on this. I haven't actually watched television for eight years. But I looked online, and I could kind of tell by the titles shows that somehow related to justice and order. For example, you got law and order. You got law and order criminal intent. You got law and order special victims unit. Okay? So we're all about law and order, apparently. You got CSI, crime scene investigation. CSI Miami. CSI New York. Right? Again, same thing. People are really into this justice thing. Right? We, we want to catch the bad guys. You got cold, day, cold case, criminal minds, NCIS, the Mentalist. Apparently, all shows about finding the bad guy and putting him in jail. Interesting. I saw one. It's called Justified. I don't, I don't know what it's about, but it said this show is about a U.S. marshal, Ryland Gibbons, a modern-day 19th-century-style lawman who enforces his own brand of justice. Why do people eat this stuff up? Because they want to see justice, right? There's something inherently in humanity that says, we've got to get these bad guys. Okay, let's get them, get the bad guys off the street. Okay, That's all well and good as long as they're not the bad guy. right? Uh, let's get those other bad guys. Let's not talk about me. right? Okay, so that's some background. A lot of background, but it just sets up the picture for what uh, is happening here in Genesis 18 and 19. So let's look, uh, and we're not going to read through the whole story we just don't have time to read through both chapters. But let me uh, start in verse 19 and read just a little bit of the story. That evening the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. 
Lot was sitting there, and when he saw them, he stood up to meet them. Then he welcomed them and bowed with his face to the ground. My Lord, he said, come to my home to wash your feet and be my guest for the night. You may then get up early in the morning and be on your way again. Oh, no, they replied. I think we'll just spend the night out here in the city square. But Lot insisted, so at last they went home with him. Lot prepared a feast for them, complete with fresh bread made without yeast, and they ate. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, uh, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. And they shouted to Lot, Where are the men you, who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out so we can have sex with them. So Lot stepped out to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he said, I, he begged, don't do such a thing, such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them as you wish. But please leave these, these men alone, for they are my guests and under my protection. Okay, and apparently his daughters weren't under his protection. <laughs> uh, wow. Stand back, they shouted. This fellow, as in meaning Lot, come to town as an outsider. Now he will act as our judge. We'll treat you far worse than those other men. And they lunged at Lot to break the door down. But the two angels reached out, pulled Lot into the house, and bolted the door. Then they blinded all the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house. So they gave up trying to get inside. Meanwhile, the angels questioned Lot. Do you have any other guests, any other relatives here in the city? They asked. Get them out of this place. Your sons-in-laws, daughters, daughters, anyone else. For we are about to destroy the city completely. The outcry against this place is so great it has reached the Lord, and he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot rushed out to tell his daughter's fiancés, Quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it. But the young men thought he was just joking. At dawn the next morning, the angels came, became insistent. Get up, they said. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here and get out right now, or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. But when Lot still hesitated... The angel seized his hands in the hands of his wife and two daughters and drug them out of the city to safety. For the Lord was merciful. We'll stop there. Um, look real briefly at the just, the unjust, and the lost. First of all, let's look at the just. Chapter 18, and we, we won't spend a lot of time there, but it really is a picture of, of Abraham. And if you remember, it starts off with the same angels, actually three of them though, coming to visit Abraham. A very similar, it begins very much the same way. Abraham rushes out, greets them, invites them, shows great graciousness and hospitality. Um, the angels remind and re restate that uh, Abraham is going to have a son, Isaac, through Sarah. Uh, Sarah laughs, play on Isaac's name, which means to laugh. Uh, then they prepare to leave, and they go to a hill overlooking the valley below uh, towards the Dead Sea and beyond this, this uh, valley of the plain. And God says these amazing words to Abraham. He says, should I hide my plan from Abraham? The Lord asked, for Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to walk in the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And then uh, God has this amazing dialogue with Abraham, and the crux of it is Abraham wrestles with God regarding his destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the plain. And, and, and uh, in fact, Abraham 
raises the question of God's justice. He says, is it just, is it right for you to wipe out these cities if there are 50 righteous people there? And he kind of works his way down until he gets to 10. Uh, And he pleads for those cities based on the fact that God, look, a just God just can't wipe out everybody, right? Uh, if, If there is any righteous people there, it would not be right or good for you to judge them. And it raises up one of the issues about evil and God's, God's treatment of it in the world. Uh, the reality is we live in a world where the, the just and the unjust are very much mixed up. Right? If God is to bring judgment against the wicked, uh, it oftentimes will affect the innocent as well, the unjust. Uh, an earthquake kills good and bad people alike. AIDS attacks drug addicts and sex addicts, as well as brand newborn babies. Right? So it's complicated. And uh, it's a lot easier if it's a place like Sodom where the whole city is so wicked and corrupt that he can just wipe it out. Now, of course, you can take a very New Testament approach and say, well, you know, everybody deserves it. And that would be true. Uh, but apparently, as Abraham prays and argues, uh, there are degrees of wickedness, okay? And it raises some interesting questions. Uh, is Lot really righteous? Okay, here's a guy who's about to s- give his daughters to these horrible men to abuse, right? The same thing happens in the book of Judges, and the poor girl dies, right? Uh, there are questions about Lot's righteousness. Well, it's all relative. Uh, compared to Abraham, Lot is just a jerk. Compared to the Sodomites, he is a holy man. It's all kind of relative. And we all recognize there is good and evil people in the world, humanly speaking. And God does take notice of that at some level. And so one of the problems of God sending judgment is that it's not that simple. It's not like he can send a scourge on the world that isolates sinful people. Okay, that would be the sin nature and death, actually. And we all are afflicted by it. So that that raises some of the problems here Abraham and God wrestle with that. Uh, Abraham, though, is a righteous person. He's a, he's a guy whose character is identified by God as good. And in fact, in this story, God shows himself also to be very righteous. God goes to great lengths and care uh, to make sure that he follows his own standard of justice. And what we mean by that is that uh, it's interesting, God sends these angels to check out uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, does God not know what's going on there? Uh, it says that this great outcry has come up against, uh, come up to God. Uh, God has heard the outcry of people being victimized by sin. And the reality is that sin always has victims. And the cries come up to God. But God doesn't go on the, that basis alone. It's, it's very much a legal proceeding here. And so God sends these angels to investigate. They are his CSI guys, right? Crime scene investigators who go and check out and, and scope and survey uh, what's going on here. And uh, they gather evidence. They become witnesses against the city. And it doesn't take long for them to gather evidence, right? As the whole town comes out, every man, young and old, from every corner of the city comes out and uh, has evil intentions, Right, so they, the angels get the evidence that they need. Um, you wonder who, who's crying out. Uh, certainly, wherever there is sin, there are victims. 
and certainly in Sodom, they were causing harm to each other. Ultimately, we are, are victims of our own sin. You know, ultimately, sin destroys us. And uh, I just have this picture of these guys coming to the end of their life, uh, crying out to God over their own sin, their own horribleness of their life, their own captivity to evil and wickedness of their own heart. So you got this picture of just Abraham. But then you got this great picture of the unjust, the unjust Sodom. Um, they do get all the evidence they need. And the city is corrupt in every way. It's a city in which there is no redeeming factor. They were evil, evil people. And by that, we simply mean, as I said, evil is seeking to fulfill the desires of your heart and flesh completely apart from God. That was these people. They were consumed with themselves, consumed with their own way of doing things, uh, consumed by their own wicked appetites, with no care for the harm it would bring to others. Okay, they were willing to, to kill people. They were willing to overrun Lot, uh, filled with wickedness, filled with evil, filled with sin. Selfish, proud. Uh, Lot tries to, to confront them. They said, who are you? You don't even live here. You're not one of us. And they try to go after him. They're, they're proud. They are selfish, consumed with evil. Uh, and and it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist here to, to, to make judgment, okay? Like if we were to take a vote... After reading the story, the horribleness of what they want to do, just the selfishness, the, the wickedness of it all, we were saying, okay, you're the jury. How many of you vote they should get the brimstone, right? We won't, we won't do that. But I think everybody would say, yeah, these guys, there's nothing good here, right? Uh, they've been f- put on trial and found guilty. And so God does that. He, he sends fire and brimstone. He wipes out the city. In fact, he wipes out the entire valley. Uh, with a, a burning, flaming scourge of judgment. So much so that to this day, it's a scorched landscape. Apparently, by the descriptions given by Lot when he first goes there, it was at one time beautifully lush and green. But to this day, that southern tip of the Dead Sea is a empty, barren desert where things won't even grow. Nobody can live there. Uh, God's judgment there was quite extensive. Um, he spares Lot and his, and his family. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in the end, he destroys everything. Uh, remember, judgment is not evil. Okay? Was that catastrophe on Sodom an evil thing? Absolutely not. It was God's good, righteous judgment. And it was, it was the just response to the sin and wickedness of that place. Now, it raises a problem, though, okay? Uh, you can say, okay, well, that was good because God judged this place and he pulls out Lot, who is kind of righteous, um, and certainly nobody else qualified, young and old. They were all taint, so tainted, so under the uh, grip of evil that they all deserved it. But it raises questions for modern-day catastrophes. Okay, what about earthquakes? What about tsunamis? What about cyclones that kill tens of thousands of people? What about diseases like AIDS or cancer or the swine flu or, you know, the next superbug that's going to kill us all, right? I just, got, I just saw wonderful news. They found this drug-resistant strain of malaria on the Thai-Vietnamese border. Did you see that? That's a lovely thought. 
you can get malaria and that there's no cure for. It. Um, what do we do with those kind of things? Okay, uh, it would seem, uh, you know, Abraham. This is the, this is the problem. Abraham argued, God, it's not just for you to wipe out the righteous with the wicked. You know, if we use Abraham's words and apply it to modern day scenario, here's a problem. You know, God sends these earthquakes and good and bad people alike die. Christians and non-Christians die, right? The tsunami, there were good people who died, there were bad people who died. They're all range of righteousness and wickedness. What do we do with that? Right? Uh, is God unjust or is he not in control? Uh, there are some people who say, God cannot be behind those acts of nature. Um, God cannot, and I've heard that. I've heard a guy say that from the pulpit, a preacher. He said, God cannot be behind those acts of nature. The God I know uh, could not do that. Well, if that's true, he needs to find a different God because I don't think he knows the God of the Bible. Okay, The God of the Bible is the creator of creation, Lord over it. If God can't control the earthquakes, tsunamis, and storms, you and I are in big trouble. Because if he's not controlling it, who is? All right. If the Creator who made it is not in charge of it, we're all in big trouble. Right. So who's in, so? I believe doctrinally we've got to lay down the foundation. If God's sovereign, if He's the, truly the true and living God, who's Creator over all things, He is behind it. All right. Earthquake comes, God built it. He knew where the cracks were, and He knew when it was going to break loose. Right. God's behind this stuff. Um, you don't believe it, you know, I, I, I challenge you to think through uh, many passages of Scripture where it clearly speaks God sending these natural cla- calamities and disasters. The Bible's real clear on that. Uh, if you can't serve a God like that, you need to rethink who God is. Okay, because you have problems with understanding the very nature and essence of who God is. And see, so it kind of goes back to the same problem. We see judgment as evil, all right? You've got to know that judgment is not evil. And uh, we say, okay, well then, okay, then how come he sends it on good people? Oh, you got me there. All right. However, I have an answer. <laughs> um, here's the deal. Psalms, Psalms, Psalms 18, 25, and 26 puts it this way. To the faithful, speaking to God, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To those with integrity, you show integrity. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the wicked, you show yourself hostile. Uh, The reality is, there is really no truly bad thing that happens to the life of God's child. Okay, God can send these natural calamities and disasters. But the meaning of the act is not determined by the event. It's determined by the person receiving it. Okay? So if you are a wicked person, to you, God will show himself hostile. If you are a child of God, God will show himself faithful. And that's true in a hurricane or an earthquake or with AIDS, any disaster or problem. Okay? If you are God's child, that thing for you is not an evil thing and it's not judgment. Okay? If hard things happen, you're caught in an earthquake and your house falls to the ground and you're destroyed, that's not God's judgment to you because you... Uh, your your punishment for sin has already been paid by Christ. There is no condemnation for you. To you it is not judgment. To you it is the faithfulness of God. You're going, well, maybe I wish God would be a little less faithful. <laughs> okay? That's the kind of faithfulness I could really live without. But it's what Paul says and what Jesus says, what 
what happens throughout the New Testament, those things are God's good gifts to shape in us His character, to build in us faith, and to draw us to Himself. All right? So for us who are His children, those are good things. Uh, that's why James says, I count it all joy when you fall into all these hardships and trials, for they produce in you the character and likeness of God. But to the wicked person, it's judgment. Okay, to the wicked, God shows himself hostile. To the wicked person, it is judgment. Because they are unwilling to receive God's correction. And if they continue to re- refuse God's correction, it's judgment. I love the picture in, in chapter 19. Lot goes to his sons-in-law. Potential future sons-in-law. I'm not sure. It's a little confusing there. Who, If they're already married or not married. doesn't matter. point is, he goes to warn them of coming judgment. They can't hear it. Because of the wickedness of their heart, there is no space for truth. Right? So it comes to them judgment. Had they had any truth in them, any goodness, like Lot, when the warning came to Lot, what did Lot do? Well, he didn't actually leave, but he got real worried about it. Okay? He, he starts preaching repentance. He gets, he, he gets the revival spirit on him. He starts saying, run, run for us, run, even though he actually doesn't in the end run himself. Um, it strikes him, and there's something in him that's righteous enough he hears the truth, right? So that's, that's the way it works. Two, two examples in Scripture. Uh, Joseph, uh, you know, he gets sent to, to, to Egypt. He becomes a slave. He goes to jail. He suffers all these things. Uh, in the end, what does Joseph say about it? He says, you, to his brothers, he says, you meant it for evil. It was on your part an evil thing because your intention of your heart was to destroy me. But it wasn't judgment. It wasn't judgment on my life. In my life, in fact, it wasn't an evil thing. God meant it for good, right? See, God's big enough that for us who are His children, there is no evil thing. There's no evil circumstance in our life. Okay, so, so Joseph says, you meant it for good. God meant it for evil. Uh, Jesus and the thieves on the cross. All three of them were being crucified. Okay, for the wicked, it was judgment. For the righteous Jesus, it was redemption and His glory. So you get the picture of that? I don't have time. I'll let you think about it. But God's... The event is not evil in and of itself. We are the one who's determined whether it's judgment or grace. Whether it's God purging us of sin and us rebelling against it or God using it to produce in us His character and likeness. Um. Finally, the, the the lost. So you got the righteous. You got the, the you got the just. You got the unjust. You got the lost. You know, you got to ask about Lot. Was he righteous? Was he unrighteous? What is this guy? I think he was lost. Okay, here's a guy who was just lost, and he's a guy who has some redeeming qualities. He, like Abraham, is a gracious host. He is horrified by the sinfulness and wickedness of his fellow citizens. He says, "Don't do this wicked thing." He actually goes out um, and, and does everything in his power to protect his guests, even risking his own life and consequently the life of his daughters. Um, but he's trying to protect. Okay, He's trying to do the right thing here. Glimpses of righteousness. Uh, he goes out and he preaches judgment fervently to, his, fervently to his family. He says, run, get out of here. There's about, the city's about to be destroyed. Right? Uh, he leaves, and as he's on his way, the angels send him off, say, run, run to the hills. You know, I can't run that far. I'm kind of a sissy and a wimp. I don't have it. And he prays for Zoar. He says, send me to Zoar. It's just a tiny little town. 
kind of like, can you just put an umbrella over that city and spare it for my sake? So he prays, he intercedes actually for the city and God hears him. So you see these glimpses of righteousness, but at the same time, it's clear he lived in Sodom way too long, right? Been there way too long. Uh, and in many ways he is nothing like Abraham. He's corrupted by its evil. You know, we see that when he foolishly offers his two daughters. You know, what is he thinking? What is he thinking? Um, he warns the others to run, but when the time comes to leave, what does he do? He can't do it. Angels wake him up, get up, go run. And he's like packing. He's like, well, maybe we should make lunch. Maybe tomorrow. You know, I think it's going to rain today. Let's, can we do this tomorrow? Right? He can't. He's stuck. He can't walk in obedience. Abraham, throughout the story up to now, when God speaks, Abraham, whether he believes it completely or not, instantly obeys. God says, you've got to go circumcise yourself. This is that very day he goes out and circumcises himself and his family. But you see Lot, unable, he's stuck, right? His city is about to be destroyed. And he's contemplating the blue shirt or the red shirt, okay? He's confused, he's stuck. Um, he drags his feet, he, he does not have faith, okay? He says, you know, I can't, I can't do this. I can't get to the mountains. I won't be safe there. He can't trust in God's protection, unlike Abraham, who's confidently living in God's protection. And in the end, Lot loses everything. Uh, He once was so blessed with so much wealth that he and Abraham couldn't live in the same region. So he went there because he had so many sheep and cattle and possessions. Uh, He loses all he owned. He He escapes with only the shirt on his back. Everything he owns is destroyed. He loses his wife. Uh, who turns, and we'll talk about her in a minute, turns and uh, longs for the city. Right? She can't escape. Um, finally loses his honor. Last story of the chapter, great story. Another great story. You know, Ends up in the hills, actually, because he can't live in the city because he is afraid. Ends up living in the mountains with he and his two daughters in a cave. In the Old Testament, a cave is always where refugees and, and runaways live. And uh, his daughter was going, you know, we're going to have kids. There's no guys around here. Let's get dad drunk and sleep with him. Great story, you know. That's the kind of thing you cross-stitch and put on your wall, right? Uh, you know, dies without honor. I mean, he instantly like, he gets kids, he gets offspring. There's no honor in it. Shameful, dishonored. And, you know, his grandkids are called, yeah, I'm here because my mom slept with my grandfather. It's really what the name Moab and Ben-Ami mean. This means I'm here because of incest. Okay, and that name gets attached to your descendants forever. Great. Yeah, great label. Everything he has is lost. Captured by sin. Stuck. Trapped. Left to himself, he would have died with Sodom. But it, thankfully for Lot, the story doesn't end there. And God does an incredible thing for him. And I love this picture. It says that uh, when, when Lot hesitated, the angel seized his hand and drug he and his wife and two daughters out of the city. For the Lord was merciful. Right? Why did God save Lot? Well, for the same reason he saves you, you and I. It's two, two good reasons. First reason is because of the mercy and grace of God. Okay? God did not save Lot because Lot was good enough. God saved Lot because God is good enough. Right? It was the goodness of God that drug Lot out of that city when he could not save himself. Incredible picture of how we come to Christ. 
Uh, the reality is in Lot's heart there was something that turned in his will. There was something in him when he heard this word of judgment that he wanted to get saved. I think he believed it. I think he knew the destruction was imminent. I think he wanted to leave the city. When it came down to it on his own, he could not move his feet. Right? What a great picture of salvation. Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of our works, so that you could boast. Right? How did you get saved? Right? Was it because the message came to you and you picked up your feet and you stepped out of that city of Sodom on your own because you could do this on your own? No. The Bible is very clear, very clear, that left to ourselves, even though we might want it, we are bound by sin and death and we cannot escape it. Praise God, His Holy Spirit came down and grabbed us by the hand and drug us out of Sodom. That he, that's what God's salvation is. right? God drug us out. Our part is faith. Now, does that mean that God saved you because he went against your will? Absolutely not. Right? People ask, you know, I'm, very, I, I'm Reformed. You know, I'm a Calvinist, but not a very good Calvinist. Because uh, the human will is here as well. And you see this picture in this story. God saves Lot. He drags him out of the city. But what happens to his wife? Drags her out of the city, but does it mean she's saved? No. Uh, you can drag them out outwardly, but inwardly, where was her heart still? It's still in Sodom. She chose Sodom and judgment over God's gift. Right. So there's a place where our faith, our turning to God, becomes saving. Right. But God is always the first actor, the first agent. Uh, so God showed mercy. But second of all, and, and for us maybe most significantly, uh, at the end of the story, down in verse 29, uh, it says this. But God had, uh, so Abram got up that morning early, verse 27 actually. God, uh, Abram got up early, went back to the place where he had stood in the Lord's presence, and he looked out across the plain toward Sodom and Gomorrah and watched as columns of smoke rose from the cities like smoke from a furnace. But God had listened to Abraham's request and kept Lot safe, removing him from the disaster that engulfed the cities on the plain. Really, that's the point of this whole story. I really believe that, when it comes down to it, is the main point of this story. Why did Lot get saved? Partly because of the goodness of God, but in the end, because Abraham prayed for him. That's implied all through chapter 18 and in through chapter 19. So that's the whole point of the story. That's the punchline of the story. Uh, Lot owes his life to Abraham's interceding for him. Right? It was based on God's goodness, but it was, it was caused, it was initiated by the intercessory prayer of Abraham who was concerned for Lot. And that's chapter 18. Abraham prays and pleads with God, not only for Lot, but actually for the city of Sodom. He intercedes for this lost place. Um, do we really believe that God saves people as a result of our praying? I find it so ironic in this story. Lot goes and preaches to his sons-in-laws and preaches with great urgency and intensity to no effect. Abraham neither goes to Sodom nor preaches to Sodom. All he does is pray. But Abraham sees results. Uh, what, What are we doing? 
And are we preaching? We're serving? We're going? We're telling? Are we praying? I'll tell you, I'm convinced that God will work and will move in response to our prayers. Now, does that mean He's going to save everybody? Well, He didn't save everybody. But He saved those He could. And He did it in response to Abraham's prayers. Right? Do we believe that? Well, here's how you know you believe it. How many times every day do you pray for lost people? Right? When was the last time you prayed for somebody who doesn't know Jesus, that they would come to know Christ? Right? Uh, only you know that, so I can't. This is not about guilt, okay? It's just truth. Uh, God saves people in answer to prayer. All right? God works in response to our praying. If we really believe that, we would be pleading for the people that don't know Him. Uh, and I challenge you to a good exercise I saw recently. You write down every unsaved person you know. And then go through that list and start seeking who God would ask you to start praying for their salvation. Simple thing. Simple thing. All right? We ought to be praying daily for God to move like Abraham did. Because the reality is, judgment is coming. God's good judgment will fall on every single person who has not put their faith and trust in Christ. The New Testament is dead clear about that. Okay? People will go to hell. God will send judgment. Those who do not know and receive God's good and loving grace will fall under His judgment. Do we plead for God's intervention in their life? Um, That should be the call of every true follower of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, just come before You so thankful for our own salvation. Uh, Lord, we are in many ways like Lot. Uh, We were stuck in sin and unable to move ourselves, but by your grace you did reach down and grab hold of us and yanked us out of sin and death. All we had to do is have just enough faith to grab hold of your hand and hang on for dear life. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never done that, or that they would know the reality of impending judgment, that they would take the warning of this story and uh, turn to you, but knowing they can't do it on their own. We need your help. And Lord, we praise you for your grace that you send your Holy Spirit to mediate the blood of Christ in our life. Lord, I pray also that you would just challenge us about praying for the lost. Lord, maybe we also are like Lot who could pray for Zor because it was convenient for him. Who could pray when it meant safety and comfort to himself, but had no clue about interceding for people under judgment. Who didn't even have the sense to pray for his own son-in-laws. Lord, may we be like Abraham. May we be people who take seriously the call to intercede daily for lost people we know to bring them before your throne, believing that you do indeed move in response to our prayers. Somehow, uh, that's how you do it. You call us to partner with you in sharing your heart for the lost and praying urgently for their salvation. And Lord, we do that that this morning. 
Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.